Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 56 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. Third episode in season six, and in a very intense episode. In my back and forth conundrum of whether to take time off between seasons, this season may have some time off after its completion. I'm not quite sure. As I've said many times, both in the podcast here, in my lives, in things that I write, rehashing all of this, bringing things up, returns me emotionally sometimes to exactly where I was at that time which there are those who would say, stop living in the past. And I'm not living in the past by sharing the past. I feel I'm creating a healthier future for myself and hopefully opening the doors for other women and girls out there that have gone through what I've gone through and don't dare say anything about it. Episode one, if you haven't been listening, was middle school and letting my mother know I had been abused. And episode two of this season was discussing my relationship with my teacher. And that's where this one will pick up. You know, it's easy to get caught up in the details of it. Oh my God, she had sex with a teacher. Yeah, okay, that's that's true. And that's a piece of it. But that piece of it is what what permeates emotionally. I know as a health educator, always, always one of my favorite lessons was how the rules were different for men and women in sexual relationships. If you go and play a soccer game, each team has the same rules. That's how you have a fair game. But you change the soccer fields into a big old king-size bed and the female team is on one side and the male team is on the other and the rules are completely different. What is a conquest and a trophy for a guy is a mark of shame for a girl. I should do research. The more I talk about my own experiences, the more I ponder what single gender unions would be like in terms of who might be the powerful one, the one with the bigger voice, they're a silent one. Are those relationships more equal? You know, I don't know. It's not the same. All of my experience is heterosexual, you know, male on female abuse. And that's what I speak about. I do hope that my stories are transferable enough that if the details for you are different, that the scenario is the same, that you would be able to pull from it. This episode will start with the summer of 1979. And when I think back to the summer of 1978's beginning, where I was heading off to gymnastics camp and I had not yet gone to Concord High, 12 months made such a change. I was such a different Barbara Higgins in those 12 months as I had been the previous 12 months. It's amazing when you pick a marker and you go year to year to year on that marker and you look at who you are and what you're doing. I was 15 when school ended my sophomore year. I turned 16 that summer. So I wasn't even old enough to drive a car (laughs) when I was going through all of this very, very tumultuous and adult stuff. And I remember all the conflict I had inside because I only knew one way to approach anything that had to do with sex. And that was It was secret and wrong. You know, luckily for me, I I was never hurt physically, like painfully hurt in my abuse. And so I didn't associate physical pain with it. I entered the summer of my sophomore year, very, very different than I entered the summer after my freshman. I took driver's ed that summer to reiterate how different it was. There were a couple of different driver's ed teachers. 
there was one driver's ed teacher who you never wanted to drive with him alone. Nowadays, you have to have a third person in the car. You, you don't do driving hours by yourself. And I don't know all of the reasons why, but I think a big one would be, you know, you've got young people alone in a vehicle with an adult and you want to have coverage and safety and all that. That wasn't the case for us. There didn't always have to be a third person. There often was, but it wasn't mandated like it is now. There was one particular driver's ed instructor and I fortunately did not have him. I had Mr. Phelps. He was awesome. So I was always felt safe in the car. But everybody knew that if you got the other one, you were going to get felt up. You know, and I just I think about that now and just how often awful that is. But we lived in a society still, 1979. In those years, women, I think women could just barely get credit cards on their own. And I think in many states, it's still legal at that, that time to rape your wife. Like a wife couldn't accuse her husband of rape because they were married. I know these are harsh things to hear, but it's a mindset. And with all the Roe v. Wade stuff going on and how voiceless so many women in our country feel right now, it stands out to me because I lived in a time where family things just stayed within the four walls of the family. Good, bad, and ugly. You didn't, you didn't talk about things. Maybe there's some safety in that. I don't know. You know, certainly it's nice to have privacy, but if privacy is keeping a crime a secret, then that's just not right. So my whole entire childhood and middle school years was centered around processing what had happened to me and how ingrained in my very being it all was and remains. Children are not ready to have sex. They aren't. And so when children are abused in its manner, when they have a conflicting feelings, even little babies know. I remember the first couple of times Gracie was at the doctor's office and, you know, they take the diaper off and they check all the baby parts. She like got this look on her face, like, like, a, oh, and she got very, very tender and wanted me to pick her up. And she just knew this. I don't know this person and they're taking off my diaper. You know, and there was nothing inappropriate about what happened there, but we know, you know, intrinsically, just like we know when we're hungry, when we know when we're thirsty, when we know that we're tired, little children know that this is a feeling that is different and evokes things that emotionally we're not ready for. We're hardwired to reproduce. So we're hardwired to have sex. And sex feels good when it's an appropriate, healthy sexual relationship. When that isn't your beginning, when the way that you're feeling is conflicting, when something feels okay, it maybe even feels good, but it makes you sick at the same time because of the person that's doing it to you. Please understand how devastating that is to a child. And then, and then you have no one to process it with. I didn't even know for a long time. I, you know, I'll, I'll get into that. I'll do that season next. And that will be a hard one for me to talk about. I have a hard time putting to words what exactly happened because it makes my skin crawl. And unfortunately for me, I don't forget anything. I have an unbelievable memory, which is hard. But I can't sleep at night lots of things come back. So summer of 79, from 15, I sign up for driver's ed, which is such a rite of passions. You know, for me, for girls, I think for me, it was getting my period. Now that means I'm you know, mature. I'm growing a, a body that will be an adult body. And now, two months shy, almost to the day of my 16th birthday, I've now entered the world of sex. And it continued into the summer. You know, school ends, and there wasn't a lot of reason for me to see science guy. And I would meet him on runs sometimes, go running together. You know, I remember actually we met on my birthday and I was gone for hours and my mother was furious. <laughs> I entered that summer excited. I wanted to feel grown up and I did feel grown up and also anxious and not sure. That was me emotionally. In terms of running, I was on cloud nine. I had finished my sophomore year, my first year of spring track. Keep in mind, March 19th to June 13th, roughly. That's three months, just under three months, 12 weeks. And I went from 
barely being able to finish three miles to being the sixth, sixth fastest miler in New England on that day when I ran the New Englands. And, you know, that's amazing to me. My first timed mile was 609 and my fastest timed mile that year was 524. That's a big jump. At that time, the faster you get, the smaller your improvements are because it's just harder and harder to get faster. But I finished my sophomore year as an established athlete. So what did that do for me socially in school? Socially in school, I suddenly had a table to sit at in the cafeteria. I had all these people saying hi to me in the halls. Mark Smith, whose dad was Harvey, who was such a, an important part of my high school experience, was this popular, popular guy. He was such a popular boy. And there was a newspaper article about me where I was called Spunky Barbara Higgins. And so he called me Spunk for like the rest of my life. <laughs> the fact that he even talked to me, you know, like these things, as the summer went along, these things were a profound piece of it. The other profound piece was I had competed on a team. I was a part of a track team. And so there was a group of us, five girls called the Fearsome Five. And we sort of developed this friendship with each other after class cells or after states, after one of the championship meets. We shouldn't have been drinking, but I think <laughs> we did. I think it was after I got fifth in the mile. We went out and I had, my picture was in the paper. We went and partied. Drinking was so prevalent then, but I remember the five of us and we all ran track. Bridget was a thrower. Bridget had the unfortunate experience of finding herself sandwiched between unbelievably talented athletes. And her family was very, very insistent that they do sports. She did three sports a year. No going home after school and sitting around. That's actually a really, really good way to raise your kids. It's nice to be busy and involved. Her sister Maureen was a stellar high jumper, still holds the school record in the high jump, I believe. She and I have some of the oldest records. And her sister Catherine was at St. Paul, so she wasn't in the, in the realm. But, you know, here is Bridget on this team, and she has to be there with her big superstar sister. So Bridget was a thrower, maybe a short sprinter. Selena was a sprinter. She was on the school record holding four by 100 meter relay team, which I think that is still a school record. I need to check these out. Elaine was a distance runner like me, 800 meters, middle distance. And Maggie was also, Maggie was an unbelievable long jumper and high jumper as well and sprinter. And I was the distance runner. So we all had our different events and we did a lot of things that summer. The Fearsome Five, I remember just really truly feeling like I belonged. I remember sitting out front, uh, Concord High School has a big new building in the front now, but where that new building is, used to be a parking lot in a 200 meter track. I remember sitting on the grass that went down there. We'd often sit out there and eat our lunch, signing yearbooks. And I remember Bridget signing my yearbook and I signed Bridget's and, you know, just feeling so just that I had arrived and that these unbelievably popular people liked me. And, you know, when we talk as adults, we still get together. Shortly after Molly died, Maggie invited us all over to her home on the seacoast and we all get together the five of us and, and just talked about our lives. And I was just so hurting. I was still pretty stunned. I actually remember drinking on the way in the car. I think or maybe on the way home. I don't know. I was really, really struggling. That summer, I spent a lot of time with them. And, you know, none of us had our licenses yet. Bridget didn't turn 16 until September. And, you know, all of us, maybe Selena had her license. I don't know. I think she was the first one and she had this purple car <laughs> that we took everywhere. So that summer was transformative that way. I had a whole new social reality in terms of my high school friends and my high school experience. Romantically, no. But remember, I was all caught up with this 33-year-old man. And so I didn't, wasn't thinking about, about high school boyfriends. And, and I think the way the rumor mill goes, and I told enough people, I'm not sure who I confided in, quite honestly. If you're listening and you went to high school with me and you remember me confiding and you let me know. <laughs> but I do know that it was the best of times and the worst of times all at the same time. And that Charles Dickens book opening can really, really illustrate my life sometimes. The driver's ed was good. My social life was good. 
science guy was science guy. It was continuing along and running. So I joined a local running club called Turtletown AC. Mr. Ludi started it and they had monthly meetings and I met this entire community of runners. And of course, I was the only high school aged person in the running club. Everybody else, they were all adults. I talked Elaine and Maggie into joining it. And so they would come to some of the practices. And I remember that summer just finding myself as a distance runner. I ran probably 35 miles a week, 40 miles a week, a lot. I loved it. And I did a bunch of road races. And that was that was an eye-opening experience for me as well. My very first road race ever was a 10K in Bosquin. And then I ran a five-miler in Raymond. And I remember like taking the day off before, taking the day off after, you know, like oh, I'm doing a five-mile race. And it was just this huge eye-opening experience. So that was a transformative summer. I trained and I remember in the spring after one of my track meets, Chris Robinson, who was an English teacher at Concord High School and met in the cross-country coach at the time, came to a track meet and asked me if I would be doing cross-country in the fall. I said, yeah, I don't think I'll be cheering. I think I'll do cross-country. And not really even knowing what cross-country was, what I knew of it was what I watched at White's Park, which was Mr. Ludi's huge teams circling up and stretching. And they were just legendary, his cross-country team. Summer ticked along and I ran and it was in the course of the summer that I met Jay Cole. So Jay owned a running store in Concord called The Long Run. And his first wife was my art teacher in middle school. And so I knew him or knew of him. And now that I was a runner, I went to that store just all the time. And he was very influential and helpful in getting me into the running club. He was also the first person who said to me that I could probably break five minutes in the mile. Wouldn't it be neat if I were the first high school girl to break five minutes in the mile? Another person that was influential that summer for me in the running community was Walt Chadwick. Walt was a Concord High alumni, ran for Coach Ludi. He worked at Nike at the time, as did Jay Smith, who's another Concord High alumni, Ludi alumni, and runner. Jay lives in Concord now, and he has a business, Stitches New Hampshire. Here's a little shout out for you, Jay. All of these people became very influential in my life, again, in matching my psyche and what happens to little girls who grow up to be teenagers and young adults after being abused the way I was, is I was drawn to people who were older than myself, always adults, always people older than me, specifically men that were older than me. My first really two or three serious relationships were with people significantly older. That's a pattern in my life. So summer of 1979, I worked at Weeks. I was a waitress and I loved, that was a fun job. I walked to and from work. You know, we did not one family car. If, if the car wasn't home, there wasn't a ride for me. There were times I walked home in freezing cold, dark weather. That was just the way it was. Ran every day. I took driver's ed. I often took summer school classes. I think driver's ed was all I did that summer. I was always busy in the summer. And this was something that my mother was good about for me. My middle school, two summers were gymnastics camp. I often did the summer orchestra in, in an art class. I just stayed busy in the summer, always trying to do things that were in our price range. I never went to overnight camp, though. I never did go to sleepaway camp. And as the summer ticked along and my running got better and better, I got really, really excited about fall and cross country. I also counted down the days until school started. I just couldn't wait. I wanted to be back in school. And what I didn't know at the time was, was running. In some ways, it went to my head a little bit. There was an article about me in the Manchester Union Leader. I got athlete of the month for July. I enter into cross country. It's, it's August. Now, nowadays, boy, those girls are running all summer, organizing together. We all ran on our own. And I think I was probably the only one that really ran actively. So going into 11th grade was the first year I ever ran cross country. So I only got two seasons in high school. And I remember going, and of course, cross country teams typically aren't that big. 
when I joined the team, I was one of a handful of new girls, but a lot of them had run together, you know, for a couple of years, several years and knew each other and had all this. So the first day we did a distance run and I, I finished like five minutes ahead of everybody. Like I tried to run with everybody, but I was really, really in good shape. I had a really rough start and I oftentimes was excluded from things or I just felt left out. I had started spending a lot of time at the running store in the summer as well. And I started to develop pretty strong feelings for the owner, Jay, who's, you know, 10 years older than me. And again, another sort of person that wouldn't be an appropriate partner, which made him all the more appropriate in my untherapized mind. But I remember going in there once after school and being, just being really sad. He's like, what's wrong? And right at that time, the whole cross country team ran by and they were singing like school spirity songs. And I just really struggled because I didn't know what to do. I, I couldn't, in my mind, run slow. <laughs> I needed someone to run with me. That didn't last that long. As everyone got fit, I was already fit. So my distance runs weren't going to be much faster at the end of the season than the beginning. And so one by one, some of the top runners caught up with me. It wasn't until we had our first race where we raced against other teams. So we went, our first meet was a rainy day. We're in Dover. I remember we had these t-shirts and I, I didn't like sleeves. So I would roll them up. I remember rolling up my sleeves and we had maroon shirts and we all decided that we had to match and cross country, you have to be the same. So we had red and white striped dolphin running shorts, total clash, total color clash. And so I won the race and I won the race by a lot. And on the way home in the bus, a couple of the girls came up and said, you know, we really need to apologize. We, we thought that you just were fake. We didn't know you were actually as good as you are. This was my first lesson in humility. I mean, Mr. Ludi was always very, very vigilant about making sure that we were humble, that I was, I was lucky that I had this talent. It didn't make me better than anybody, only when it was a race, that I was better than everybody. But I wasn't the better human being. I wasn't suddenly higher class and all that. I'm still me. And he was very, very good about that. But you know, I had never been the best. Everything I had tried, I was mediocre at. I was a pretty good swimmer. I had the preventative medicines at a younger age. Everything made me wheeze. And so I never got good at it. So that fall was a learning experience. I remember a bunch of my friends went to a concert, some of the Fearsome Five girls, and I wasn't invited. And I just felt, I just felt bad about it. So I sort of, I just got a little bit quiet, but you know, I shouldn't say anything. And so Another running club existed called the Seacoach Striders. And this was a, a girls running club, high school girls primarily. And it was put on by Jeff Johnson, who's another person who works for Nike. So I was very, very connected to the Nike people. The Seacoach Striders often went and competed in like cross-country nationals. And they were going to North Carolina, to Raleigh to compete. I was invited to go. And so I said, yes. And so it was over Thanksgiving weekend, I believe. But I didn't tell anybody. I didn't say anything. I left and I went and I was at, at the Nationals. And so, of course, it's Thanksgiving weekend and, you know, big party weekend. And so I wasn't at anything. And a couple of my friends, now remember, no cell phones, no email. Once you're gone, you're gone. And so they called my house and it was Barbara there. No, she's running in the Nationals. And so when I got home, I had cards and a cake and congratulations. So I did terrible in the race. <laughs> and it was an eye-opening experience for me. My friends felt bad that they had excluded me and they felt bad that by telling me you're a little full of yourself, I got real quiet and didn't share. It was a wonderful learning experience. And I, and I really do have good friends. The trip to nationals was eye-opening in a number of ways. I, I got to know all these runners from other schools. So it was the best runners from all these different schools. And it's really where I got to know Marty Che, who would end up being my college roommate. So Marty didn't know who I was because she had been injured in the spring, didn't run spring track. So she came to a dual meet at White's Park and I beat her. I beat her by a lot. And I remember she sort of, like when the race started, she was like right next to me. And I just, I knew she was good, but it's probably best I didn't know how good she was. I, did, I didn't get nervous all day because I didn't think that 
I had anyone to race against. And I beat her. And I remember when she finished, I went over to congratulate her and she was furious. <laughs> Marty wasn't always a great sport. She was so angry and she was like really upset. Who the heck are you? And so once she calmed down, we talked a little bit. And then in the championship meets, in class L's, I had a rough time. I got hypothermia and I really staggered to the finish. I was freezing and I finished eighth, I think. And then in, in the meet of champions, I finished maybe fifth or sixth. And my breakthrough race really was New England. So I was in Gardner, Mass. And I placed fourth. And, you know, there's like a couple hundred people in the race. And I remember it was one of those races where everything just clicks. The best thing I can describe, compare it to is when you do something difficult that requires technique, when you do something just right, it's effortless and it feels perfect. And that's how this race felt. I remember turning around and looking over my shoulder because it was so quiet. Like I just was amazed. Marty was ahead of me. Cindy, somebody from Pinkerton was ahead of me. And Julie McCrory from Rhode Island passed me in the last like 200 meters. And then there was this huge chunk of time between me and the next runners. The invitation to go to nationals was, was like icing on the cross-country cake for me. And so I went, of course. It was a van ride down, two vans. And we stayed at the Hilton Crab Tree, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina. What stands out for me in that trip was just how much fun we all had. You know, we walked around Washington, D.C. on the way home. We just did all these things. Jeff Johnson and his girlfriend at the time, her name was Liz, sort of chaperoned the whole thing. And then the Dover coach drove one of the vans. We had a wonderful time. It was the night before the race. It was one of the nights there. It was the afternoon, actually. We're all in the hotel and we're just kind of bored. I get the bright idea to go streaking. Let's go streaking. So for those of you who know what streaking is, it's running around naked in a public place. We thought, well, let's just streak up and down the fire escapes on the side of the hotel. So they're not really fire escapes, they're stairways. So we're standing there and it's me and Marty and a handful of other people, but ultimately it was me and Marty who agreed to do it. So we took off all our clothes. So now we're standing there naked and they're piled like right there on the ground. And I'm holding the door and there's two or three other people like right there on the stairwell with us. And Marty says, I'll hold the door. So I give her the door and she slams it shut. She goes, now we have to do it. Well, what she didn't realize is there was no doorknob. You couldn't get back in. <laughs> so we were naked with our clothes on the other side of the door and we couldn't get back in. So we're like, well, all right, let's just streak for a while. We'll figure out what to do next after. So we're going up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs. Woohoo! You know, yelling and screaming and all this. And we actually sent somebody else to go get our clothes and then come, come around and bring them to us. And we're running down the stairs and we come around the corner and there's a giant police officer, biggest man I've ever seen, like in a double-breasted jacket. Oh yeah, it was bad. So we stop. So we turn around and we just sprint all the way up to the top and we're just standing there. We're standing there right? and like, what do we do? What do we do? Pounding on the door, let us in, let us in. And so he comes up and Marty gets all up. We didn't do anything wrong. We're not doing anything wrong. They were naked. <laughs> so clearly we are. So I don't remember the details. I think he gave us this jacket. And two of us could fit into it. That's how big he was. And he walks us through the lobby into a conference room and sits us down. And our friends come with our clothes and with Liz, who's in charge of us. We had to say, who are you with? And all this. She comes down and she's furious. Once everything was said and done, she thought it was hilarious. But leave it to the two girls in New Hampshire, you know, <laughs> to go streaking in the hotel. That was the only time we ever went streaking. Well, there anyway. <laughs> I have another story that'll be in an episode. That was fine. We, you know, we got reprimanded. Don't cause trouble and keep your clothes on, that sort of thing. But, you know, I look back now, it was such an innocent time. I remember calling my mother and telling her about it so that she wouldn't hear from it when I get home. You know, a year after I quit gymnastics, almost to the day, I've completed my first cross-country season. So I have two sports seasons under my belt. I've established myself as an elite runner, not only in New Hampshire, but in New England. And I have a completely different reality at school. 
The only place I'm still really struggling at all over the place, two areas actually, one is drinking, the alcohol piece, and the other is science guy and relationships and what do I do? He made it pretty clear that it was too stressful and I was too, it's impossible for us to continue. Can't even wrap my head around what he thought we could do, that, that we could somehow have an actual relationship when I'm a student and he's a teacher. But it didn't work. It wasn't working. I was too young and too inexperienced to just be like a friends with benefits kind of thing. Like the whole thing was bizarre and incredibly uncomfortable. And so I was mostly relieved, just sort of withered away. Now, I still saw him all the time when spring trap rolled around again. I mean, there he is at practice every day. So my junior year was really a transformative year for me trying to be a real normal high school student. A couple of things in my junior year, there was a, a winter semi-formal. I wore this wool plaid dress, like with a white collared shirt under it, a little red ribbon is a bow, like, like this preppy, oh God, I wish I had a picture. But it was Bridget and her boyfriend Elton and me and Chuck and a bunch of people. And we ate, we ate at the Trinity Tavern. And I remember in the car, the radio was on and it was that Paul McCartney song, simply having wonderful Christmas time. Da-da-da-da. Every time I hear that song, I go right back to the winter semi-formal. We had a blast. It was a really, really good time. I was at the gym, Concord High, dances were in the gym and you know, decorated up. It's all nice. These are things I wouldn't have even pictured myself going to being a part of a year prior. I was so desperately wanting to be in that group and I had arrived. I have to also say, and I know that all of us feel this way, is on the inside, I was the same. I was uncomfortable in my skin. I had a weird home life. I was no different. The only change was I ran fast. And this one skill transformed me from, you know, Barbara Higgins, Ricky's little sister, skinny, braces, all the braces are gone by now, acne, and, you know, into like, you know, spunky Barbara Higgins. Look at her, a bar, bar. I remember pondering it because I spent so much time in my head as I often do now, really, really thinking about why this had happened. And not only was I this abused, damaged person with this hideous secret, I now had another secret. I now had this relationship that I'm about to say I created it myself, but I was 15. Now I was 16. I could drive a car. I got my license, you know, but I had no idea what I was doing. And it went along that way. My junior year was in many ways a typical high school year. One thing I do remember as well about high school is how much I loved English. And I took every English class Concord High School had to offer. So we had English 10 and there was no English 11 back then. You could start taking electives and there were so many unbelievable electives to take. And I took them all. Every English elective there was, I took. I had to take what's called expository writing and tied in type. You handed in work, handwritten. It took me a long time once keyboarding and you know, typewriters went by the wayside and computers where you could delete backspace and not have to white out and retype a whole page because you made a mistake. It really took me a long time to be able to create typing. I had to write and then type what I'd written. But I remember writing a whole paper, this big paper on anorexia. And I was never anorexic. However, I do know that food for me had always been something of a control issue. I was raised in a family where you had to sit at a table until you ate it. And I remember one time sitting for hours because I didn't want to eat the baked beans. The kitchen was dark. Everybody's watching TV in the other room. And I'm, I'm like, why do I have to eat something I don't like? It was irritating. And it became a power place of dreams. As a mother, you know, if Jack wants two bites of a popsicle and he's sick of it, that's fine. He's a baby. He doesn't understand wastefulness. I'm not going to make him eat something or have him go hungry. And he tries everything. He loves to try things. So food for me, it was always interesting to me. And I read book after book about anorexia, what it was like. I read stories about anorexics. 
And it was that year, it was my junior year that a girl in Pennsylvania named Mary Wasiter tried to end her life. She jumped off a bridge and she had been horribly, horribly anorexic. Distance running lent itself to anorexia. And in the 80s, it was, it was huge. It was prevalent. Lots and lots of runners were anorexic. And I can see why. You know, skinny people run fast. And so if you're not skinny and you get skinny, your times improve. is isn't just because of the skinniness. It's a lot of things. But what you notice is the skinny. So that became a bit of a, of a passion of mine. I'm really, really reading up on anorexics and what they went through and what they did. Luckily for me, I hate being hungry and I hate throwing up. So neither anorexia nor bulimia were ever a thing for me at all. In my junior year, I had, you know, limited dating experience. My first kiss had been with JR. and He was my next door neighbor. On again, off again. Tried to date. But, you know, when you, when you like someone and then you don't, then you do it and you don't. And you don't know what you're doing. I really had a difficult time. I had lots and lots of friends who were guys and a, and a very active social race and lots of fun at parties. But, I, you know, it wasn't a hookup scene for me because there was no one to hook up with. And, you know, I look back and I could think, yay. <laughs> Given my my mental health at the time, that could have been tricky for me. The other piece that really blossomed and bloomed somewhat out of control was my drinking. Because now that I was popular and hung out with athletes, athletes were notorious drinkers. And the big parties happened at an athlete's house and certain teams had reputations for being alcohol frenzies. The drinking age was still 18. It didn't go to 20 until the summer before my senior year. So we were all upset because, you know, sure, our senior year and it goes to 20. You know, a typical Friday night would be somebody would be driving. Maybe I'd be driving the bridge. Somebody would be driving. Whoever was driving picked everybody up. And then we would go sit outside a store and wait for somebody to walk by. And we'd roll the window down and say, would you buy some beer for us? And most people would. They thought nothing of it. They'd go in, buy whatever they were going to buy. They'd buy us our beer. We'd just give them the money. Never had anyone walk away with the money. They'd come out, give us the beer, and off we'd go. And we would drink in our cars because where were you going to go? Oh, we would drink outside. Where the allergy shot places now in Quest Diagnostics in Concord, it was Kidney Dialysis Center when I was growing up. And it was a parking lot back there. And we'd drive up and sit and let's go to Kidney Dialysis. And we'd, we'd sit in our car and drink there. We'd oftentimes smuggle bottles of beer into the movie theater and we'd sit and drink in the movie theater while we watched a movie. We oftentimes would just be outside someplace, right where I'm sitting, this neighborhood, <laughs> where this house is, the other side of the stream, the roads were there, but they weren't developed yet. So we would drive into the new development and onto the undeveloped roads where there weren't any houses. And we'd sit and we'd, we'd drink in the woods. You know, it was just, it's what we did. If somebody's mother or father were, was away or there was an empty house, we would go there. But there typically wasn't. We just had to drink wherever we were. And oftentimes our, our drunk fests consisted of getting drunk in a car and then driving to beachside to eat or finding some sort of remote place outside to drink. I'm amazed that we all didn't end up dead. And some of us had friends that had apartments, but you know, life was just so small that you hung out with who you hung out with. And a lot of our drinking was just done outside. And I think that's fairly typical when you live in a rural area that you can find peaceful outside places to go drink. But it was a problem for me, more so than it was for some, some of my friends. Didn't have any problem not drinking like for days and days. Like when I joined sports teams, drinking cut way down because you didn't want to get kicked off the team. And so I had no trouble with that. Really wasn't until I met Kenny that daily drinking became a habit for me. And it's a hard one to break. And I've gone in and out of sobriety and not sobriety. I, when I'm pregnant, no trouble not drinking. But the path was laid for me. I have one really specific episode my junior year where I got really, really drunk at a dance. I ran out of the bathroom and went, ran smack into a wall and had like a bruise on my face. I was outside and Officer McGonagall came and 
you can't tell my mother, I'll go home, I'll be safe. And he brought me home and he dropped me off. He was a police officer, which is how it was in the 70s and early 80s. And, he, and I walked home from the corner and watched me walk to my house. And I was just drunk, drunk as a skunk. And I remember going to school Monday and Bob Silva, this wonderful human being, he was the assistant principal at the time. He called me into his office and he said, you're not in trouble, but I'm right about you. Well, I, I was in trouble because I was visibly drunk at a dance, but he was really worried about me. And he explained to me that I'd come out. I didn't remember that I'd run into a lot. I didn't even know how I got news. That's how bad it was. And my friends knew, but it was kind of a joke. You know, they were drunk too, but not as drunk as me. So sometimes you just didn't see it. You know, you didn't see it that way. And so he was just said, I'm worried about you. And I think that you have a drinking problem. And I didn't want to hear that. I didn't even really know how to process the information. My family had become Baha'is. There's no drinking in the Baha'i face. So I had no alcohol in my house at all. And the only alcohol I remember in my house was when I was younger and it typically produced violent outbursts. So, so alcohol, again, was another thing that was connected to me with trauma. I also just think my biological dad was a daily drinker. He didn't get drunk, but he had two drinks a night, maybe more. I don't know, you know, his whole entire life. I have a hard time still. And I think sometimes it's because I still have so much trauma and grief in me and I'm still processing it. Alcohol has been my Achilles heel, so to speak, for my entire life. I have an addictive personality. I think it's why I like distance running and athletics. It's, it's a fit and get a physical reaction from it. And that maybe is the good side of being addicted to something. But my junior year was the first time anyone really, really called out my drinking as standing out as bad when compared to other people. I threw up a ton. I got drunk enough to throw up so many times. Fortunately, that episode of that dance was sort of the end of winter. Spring track was coming. I had a respite from the partying because, you know, it was Coach Ludian. We just didn't want to disappoint him. Spring track of my sophomore year, I mean, of my junior year, was, again, a wonderful, a wonderful experience. I went into that season with a 524 PR in the mile, and I believe in the school record, I had missed it by just like two seconds. It's 522. First week of the season, I ran 519 and broke it. And, and I was under 520, I think, for the rest of my career when I was racing hard. I set school records in the 800 that year as well, and in the 3200. So I ended up having all three school records. And I had them for quite a while. So that spring, I think I was well under 12 minutes in the two mile. I think I ran like 11.27, maybe something like that. And then I ran 5.06 for the mile was my best mile. And then my 800, I think was 2.18. So I really truly established myself as a, as a great runner. So looking at mile times now, in 12 weeks, my first season, I went from 6.09 to 5.24. You know, so like over 30 seconds. My second year, I went from 5.24 to 5.06. And that would be, you know, 20 seconds, not even 18 seconds. Like it's much, much harder at the faster you get. And then of course, my senior year, I would go 10 seconds and huge seconds at that speed, harder and harder to get fast. But spring track my junior year was every bit as good as it had been my sophomore year. A big change is in me as a runner occurred then. I was put on the four by 400 meter relay team. It was at a meet in Laconia. The track was still dirt then. It was a very easy meet for us to win. And so Coach Liddy had us all run all sorts of different events. And so I ran the 100 and the 800 and the 4x4. My split was a 62, which is insanely fast. And I remember looking at Coach and saying, is that good? And my friend Maggie, who was also on the relay team, looked at me like, oh, come on, you know that's good. And that was me sort of looking for praise. But I was excited. I could run fast. It made me happy. So I became a key member of the 4x4. Relays are one more way to just be connected, just really, really connected. Remember, it was Megan O'Sullivan, Maureen Ferns, and me and Maggie Duffy. 
were the four by four. I just remember really truly feeling as a runner that that was my next level of having arrived is running 506 in the mile. Things with Science Guy were essentially non-existent at that point. You know, he's an adult male, so he's obviously going to be dating. And I know that he was dating other people and dating adults and actually a couple of other students would oftentimes show up. He would house it for people all the time. I think he was relatively homeless. And so he'd house it for people I knew and I'd walk by and I'd see him there with with a classmate. And I think, made me realize that it certainly wasn't me. (laughs) It was just an ugly situation. And and I went around and around about it. My mother also found out. So I kept a diary and I remember writing, I wrote everything in it. And I remember writing in it and saying, if you're reading this mother, eat your heart out. I was in my junior year later on. And my dad, biological dad, took me for a drive. He need to talk to you. So we're driving in the car and he says, mentioned science guy's name. And I just, how did you know? And he looks at me and he goes, if you're reading this mother, eat your heart out. And I'm like, she read my diary? Now, as a mother now, I get it. I'm not sure I would have shared it like she did. I think I would have just gone to my child. I would just go to my child. I, would, I don't know. I don't know because I, I can't put myself in my mother's shoes. And she raised a family with completely unresolved trauma on her end. You know, she was doing the best that she could and what she thought was right, but I was humiliated. I don't want to talk about sex with my father, who I didn't know was my father until a few years prior. And the thought of that was weird, but he was upset and and wanted to do something about it, wanted to call the school and all that. And I just refused. No, 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 you'll ruin ruin my life and ruin me socially. And, And so nothing was done. That was the nature of it. He continued to teach. So there was some stress there. And I also was just more established as a runner. And I was also really starting to fall in love with the guy that owned the running store, Jay. So my desire to be with Science Guy lessened. I began to turn my focus a bit more toward Jay in the, in the running community. And Science Guy was a part of the running community, but he spent a lot of time out of state. He had family in a different urban state. He was oftentimes not around. He wasn't in my daily life in the summer times, especially. You know, I finished my junior year. I had had some dating experience, but not much. I continued to work through my abuse and what it had done to me as a young woman. I worked hard in school. I partied hard on the weekends. And I had an amazing, an amazing group of friends and some really, really good times. <laughs> I was just really, really sort of creating a relatively normal and happy high school experience for myself. But it was running. It was running that consumed my life. I look at that year and those years is actually in some ways, I'm going to say some of my happiest. It's September 12th today. And if you're watching me, you may have noticed there's a picture of this little blonde girl. <laughs> so this is a picture of me. And if you look at the whole picture, which you can't see, I'm with all my neighborhood friends. So actually the most adorable picture ever. Key thing of the picture is everybody in the picture has a pixie, a short haircut, except for me. Everyone's wearing jeans and sweatshirts and I'm wearing a sailor dress. <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> why I happen to be all dressed up. I just think it's funny. What's significant about this picture to me is it was taken before anything bad ever happened to me. I had not yet been abused. So I look at it and I see a little girl who thought she just had a happy life ahead of her. The other thing that is significant in this picture is how much I look like Molly, especially in the long skinny arms and how I'm holding my hands and the way I'm holding them, my hands are off the side a little bit. That is such a Molly pose right there. Unbelievable. And from this sort of sort of unfocused view, I see some Molly in the shape of my face. So it becomes a very meaningful picture, but I look at it as my last sort of happy time. <laughs> Episode four of season six will commence with the 1980s, the summer of 1980, and continue along in the same vein. 
when I look back on these years and I look at the amount and the volume of work done on mental health and mental illness, on child abuse and safe spaces to tell, and, you know, know and tell, and the Me Too movement, the opening up of sexuality when I was in high school, single, single gender couples were secret. And those that lived that way for incredible discrimination. As discriminatory as things are now, fails in comparison to what it was like when I was growing up. There was no safety for kids as gay as young people at all. You'd get the crap beat out of you. That was just that. And it was the same with any sort of abuse. You just didn't say anything. You just kept your mouth shut. And I find anyone that's marginalized, anyone that's told to be quiet, anyone that's told not to tell, that's a hard place to be. And I look back at so much of my behavior as somebody that didn't feel she had a voice. Now, I talk all the time. So people would say, what? You've always had a voice. And I often say too much. And I say things I shouldn't say. Although I have been accused of being a liar, I have nothing to hide. So I just say it all. And if I have lied in my life, I own up to it. Not a problem. So I want to thank you all for listening. I know that these episodes can and will be a little bit triggering, but it's important. It's important. And as we go along, you know, when I look at my current day life and the number of teachers that still have access to students and still somehow get away with having relationships with them and how often it's happened again and again in Concord, New Hampshire, in my own school district. And so I'm hoping, you know, by sharing the story that, that we can change the narrative and the dialogue actually change and not just be lip service change. Do something nice for yourself before you do something nice for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.